From the studios of EWTN, this is Open Line. Today's Open Line is recorded, so no calls, please. If you'd like to send us an email for a future show, the address is openline at EWTN.com. A tremendous Monday to each and every one of you. We hope you're enjoying your Labor Day weekend. We hope you went to Mass yesterday. I hope you even went to Mass today and availed yourself of the sacraments. We've got a brand spanking new program for you today, but it is a mailbag edition of Open Line Monday, so we won't be taking your calls. But Father John Tregilio is in the house, Michael McCall producing the program. Father, how are you? I'm doing fine. How do we celebrate Labor Day at the Mount? We go to school. Do you really? It's not a day off for us. Seriously. Honestly. And you call yourselves Americans. I even said, what about Laborum Exerchens? <laughs> <laughs> oh, well. To no avail. We can tell about how far that got you. Yes, um, in the basement. Exactly. <laughs> got an email here from Aaron, and he said, My friend who is Catholic would be considered a white nationalist. He doesn't believe in racial superiority, but believes there is nothing wrong with having a nation of one ethnicity. Does this square with Catholic teaching? Mm, not really. <laughs> I mean, we certainly believe in, in national integrity, um, but you know, especially in the United States of America, we were founded as uh, you know people coming from other places. You know, the Puritans came from England, and uh, we had Italians and uh, German and Polish and everybody else from all different countries. So, uh, other than the Native American Indians. You know, we're all visitors here, so it's it's kind of difficult to make that plausible case. Now, certainly in other countries like uh, in Italy and Germany and France and, and so forth, you have uh, indigenous peoples that were there, and uh, yet they accept and welcome other people, but um, they still have a French culture, an Italian culture. The American culture is, is very... Um, uh, amalgamated. It, amalgamated, yes. That's a good word of, a way of describing it. It's heterogeneous. Uh, it has all different flavors. So uh, it, it doesn't seem it coincides with any of the social teachings of the church. And I understand the, the premise, that we're, you know, the person saying that they're not uh, saying that one race is better than the other. At the same time, uh, you know, that's the point of the church's teaching is that, you know, Jesus came to save all men and women of every, uh, you know, ethnicity and background. So, you know, why respect, you can respect somebody's culture and ethnicity uh, and uh, promote your own. Like, certainly I, I belong to the Sons of Italy and the Constantinian Order of St. George of the Two Sicilies, and we're very uh, happy and encouraging promotion of our culture. At the same time, we want other people to do that as well uh, and in, spend time together as you know, brothers and sisters in Christ. So um, I think you get into trouble when you try to start to isolate. Because um, you know, when my family came from Sicily and, and Poland, they were forced to live in a certain section of town. They didn't say, oh, let's live in the Italian section. Mm-hmm. That was the only place they could go. Um, and now we sort of have some fondness for, you know, the little Italy's and that. And yet, you go to those places and you see, it's not all just one group of people there anymore. Yeah. George writes in: How much certainty does the church have that Adam and Eve exist? Is this an infallible teaching? It's part of the ordinary uh, infallible magisterium, 
And certainly Pope Pius XII made this very clear in Humani Generis, uh, his encyclical letter, that the Catholic Church um, not only uh, supports but firmly believes in monogenism, that the whole human race comes from one set of human parents as opposed to polygenism, where it comes from several uh, different uh, sources. And the interesting thing is, this is now supported by science. Um, there were two British um, biologists, I believe in the early 1980s, that uh, discovered that uh, all human, human beings that have ever lived and will live can be traced through mitochondrial DNA to one woman. And the newspapers, the secular press, gave her the name Eve. The scientists did not. But in essence, that's what they, they found is that, yes, we came from one woman. If we came from one woman, uh, you know, she, she also had her husband. And I believe science is now tracing that as well. So, yes, that's a definite doctrine of our faith. It's not just a speculation or opinion. Uh, again, it's a special mailbag edition of Open Line Monday. We won't be taking your phone calls today. Roy writes in, The Baltimore Catechism says, We are unworthy to address God ourselves, so we ask our holy friends, the saints, to pray to God for us. Is it true that we are not worthy to pray to God? Uh, well, I wouldn't <laughs> have to say yes or no on that one. Um, none of us is really, like, worthy um, even that we, we're not even worthy to exist. God didn't owe it to us. This was a free, pure gift of our creation and that he sustains us. And uh, our prayer, you know, has to be motivated by God's divine grace. Otherwise, we're not able to do it. Uh, at the same token, uh, we don't want people to think, oh, well, I can't do this. Uh, God gives everyone sufficient grace to be saved, but it becomes efficacious only with those who, who cooperate with it. So, um, yes, we, we can uh, rely upon and utilize the intercessory prayers of, of the saints and especially the intercessory prayers of Our Lady, but St. Paul makes it clear, and so does the Church, there's one mediator between God and man, and that's the God-man, Jesus Christ. But the intercessory part of the, of the saints and the Virgin Mary are not by necessity, but it's by God's divine choice and will that he allows this to happen, and it connects us uh, as the uh, mystical body Christ, as the family of, of God. Jim writes in, as a divorced Catholic, where is my place in the church? You're still a member of the church. You're not excommunicated, even if someone's uh, civilly divorced and in valley remarried, uh, they're not able to receive the sacraments, but they are not excommunicated which would mean you're separated from the church. So it makes them uh, irregular to be able to receive the sacraments. That's why we want people who are in that situation uh, to try to have that resolved, to speak to a priest or deacon in your parish, to see if there's um, something that they could do about it, possibly look into uh, an annulment uh, petition. Uh, if not, then uh, one alternative is to live as brother and sister. Um, but... The fact that you're just divorced uh, does no longer um, incur the penalty of excommunication. It did at one time, and that was to discourage people, especially Catholics here in the United States, because in Catholic Europe, there was no such thing as a secular divorce. It wasn't until uh, the secular state sort of uh, made itself autonomous from marriage. But in 
older times, you know, the only way you could be separated uh, in Catholic Europe was by having an annulment. Uh, but then once England through Henry VIII and then uh, the secular um, state started to exist separate from Christendom, uh, the, the proclivity of people to get divorced is why here in the United States we had for a brief time that penalty, but it no longer exists. So, yes, you are still a member of the church, and if you're not remarried, uh, but you're divorced, you're you're able to receive the sacraments, no problem. Uh, Bo wants to know, what is the Catholic perspective on righteousness, and how do we obtain it? Well, righteousness comes from Jesus Christ, and especially through his death on the cross. And according to the Council of Trent, we're made righteous by Jesus' act of uh, redemption on the cross because he represented us. He offered himself on our behalf to God the Father. So we become righteous through Jesus Christ. And more than just a legal act, which um, almost slipped there, <laughs> Martin Luther, certainly not <laughs> Martin Luther, but when Martin Luther maintained that this was a legal action, that just like a governor could pardon uh, a guilty prisoner and then they could get out of jail or not go to jail, um, Jesus' act imputed righteousness to us, but also redemption. So not only did he um, atone for our sins, but also won for us uh, the possibility of going to heaven. So that's how righteousness is personally applied to us, because when we're baptized is when we are made righteous in the eyes of God. It's a very special mailbag edition of EWTN's Open Line Monday with Father John Tregilio. So we're not going to be taking your phone calls today, but it's a brand new program for you on this Labor Day holiday. Um, if you would like to be part of a future mailbag program, by all means, send us an email. That email address is openline at EWTN.com. That's open line, all one word, at EWTN.com. You can also join the program on a mailbag edition by calling our listener comment line. It's our regular phone number after 4 p.m. Central Time on any given day. Just call 833-288-EWTN. That's 833-288-3986 after 4 p.m. Central Time, and you can leave a message for our hosts. It's EWTN's Open Line Monday with Father John Tregilio. This is Open Line on the EWTN Global Catholic Radio Network. Today's Open Line is recorded, so no calls, please. If you'd like to send us an email for a future show, the address is openline at EWTN.com. You know, if you'd like to help us spread the good word about the great work we're doing here at EWTN, you can become one of our media missionaries. It's very simple. We'll provide you with all the materials you need, give you the training that you need to help bring Mother Angelica's vision to your individual parish. To learn more, simply log on to EWTNmissionaries.com. That's EWTNmissionaries.com. It's a very special mailbag edition of EWTN's Open Line Monday with Father John Tregilio. If you'd like to be part of a future show, just send us an email to openline at EWTN.com. Or if you'd like to leave us a listener comment line question, 
Just call the regular number, 833-288-EWTN. That's 833-288-3986 after 4 p.m. Central Time. Um, let's take a listen to one of those listener comment line calls now. My name is Pam. I'm calling from Des Moines, Iowa, and I would like to understand redemptive suffering from a very practical perspective. What does that mean? How do we do it? Thank you. Okay, that's an excellent question. Um, John Paul, St. John Paul the Great, wrote a wonderful encyclical letter, Salvifici Dolores, on salvific suffering, and I highly encourage uh, our listeners and viewers to uh, take an opportunity to read that, not just during Lent, but any time of the year. Uh, redemptive suffering basically means when we are bearing the cross, if when we are suffering, uh, particularly when it's not... Uh, something that we incurred ourselves. For instance, you know, if you do something stupid and uh, you drink too much or eat too much and then the next day you're you're suffering from that, well, that's because those are the result of a bad decision, imprudent choice that you made. But when it's innocent suffering, particularly when, like, for instance, I had a brotherhood muscular dystrophy. So every day was very difficult for him and it was difficult for my mom and dad to care for him. This was not any type of punishment for bad behavior. Uh, it was innocent suffering, but it was redemptive in the in the fact that I'm convinced I am a priest today partially because of my brother's uh, salvific suffering. He offered up his cross for me and for my vocation. And likewise, anytime you and I are in a position where things aren't going well and it's not our fault, whether it's physical suffering, emotional, or any type uh, we can say, I'm going to reunite my suffering with Jesus's on the cross. And that's what St. Paul means when he talks about what is lacking in the in the sufferings of Christ. It doesn't mean that Jesus could not have done uh, enough, that he was incapable of doing 100%, but that he intentionally, purposely, say, did 99% and left 1% open on on purpose so that we would have room to unite our suffering. So that's what we say when we... Uh, when we were children and the nuns said, offered up for the poor souls, you unite your suffering, your inconvenience, um, you know, anything that's uh, unsettling, uh, you offer it up for um, the, the salvation of souls, whether it's the souls in purgatory or people here on earth, and uh, it becomes uh, sanctified, sacred then. Let's take another question from our listener comment line. My name is Ken, and I'm from... Limbrook, New York, and I was wondering, what does it feel like as a priest consecrating the host? What goes through your mind and in your body as that is happening? Thank you. Well, I can tell you, uh, the first time it was very scary. Um, I was literally trembling, as most priests did for their very first time. But now I've been ordained 35 years. It's still very uh, humbling because... I did not get this gift because of any merit on my part, and I'm using the very words of Christ. I'm speaking in his name. This is my body. This is my blood. Because of holy orders, I act in persona Christi, in the person of Christ. Uh, I act as an alter Christus, as another Christ. So because of holy orders, I can say, this is my body, this is my blood. And by saying those words uh, and intending to do what the church does and using wheat, bread, and grape wine, 
it happens. The bread and wine become the body, blood, soul, and divinity of Christ. And I am a tool. I am a, a means to that end. And it is humbling because I don't deserve that. Uh, and it's not something I should say, oh, pat myself on the back. But I am very, very grateful as, as every priest. Um, but if we were too afraid, we wouldn't do it. And this is why we were ordained, is in order to, we, to confect the Eucharist so we can um, forgive sins in the sacrament of, of, of penance and that. So you know, like when the high priest... Uh, in the Temple of Jerusalem would go behind the, the, the curtain and the sanctuary in the Holy of Holies and whisper the sacred name on Yom Kippur. It was frightening, but it had to be done. And that privilege, you know, went to the high priest, whoever it was for that year. Likewise, all of us ordained priests, you know, this is our job, this is what we're here to do, but we can never take it for granted. We can never treat it too uh, trivially or that this is pedestrian uh, in, in a banal way, no, this is an awesome, miraculous event that happens every time Holy Mass is offered, and it puts things in perspective, for sure. Uh, here is another question from our listener comment line. Hi, this is Jennifer from Boise. I was wondering if Father could explain what the word venerable, like, is in vulnerable, I, I don't know if I'm saying it right, Fulton Sheen, the vul vulnerable Fulton Sheen. <laughs> What does that word mean in association with his name? Well, we're all vulnerable. Only some of us are venerable. <laughs> yes, yes. Um, Fulton Sheen was vulnerable. <laughs> He's also venerable. Um, it's a title. It's a classification because before someone is canonized a saint, which ultimately is based on a decision of the Holy Father, and when you're canonized and declared a saint, it's an act of papal infallibility. But along the way, you start off as being a servant of God, which means you've led a holy life and they've looked into things. Um, and then from servant of God, you can be bumped up a notch to venerable, which means there are some miracles that they are looking at. You need one miracle, a proven miracle after death, to be beatified, be called blessed. And then you need a second miracle to be canonized and then become a saint. So Fulton Sheen right now is venerable, he's on the way, and I have, not on a, only on a good source, I heard this directly from the Cardinal who is in charge of the dicastery on saints, he said there is a, a miracle um, pending that would allow them to uh, beatify Fulton Sheen, it's just that it's sort of clogged, it's stuck in the, in the pipeline, so to speak. They had to determine where they were going to bury his remains. He got moved from New York City, from St. Paddy's Cathedral, to Peoria, which is his hometown. Um, so, But I'm convinced that he will be uh, beatified, and then, God willing, uh, canonized the saint. But venerable just means you're on the way, to, you're very close to being beatified, they're waiting for that miracle to be established, and you're one step above servant of God, which is the, the first part of, of the uh, process. And the whole idea behind the miracles is that these are things that are attributed to uh, the intercession of the candidate being considered uh, as something that probably could not have come about without their intercession beyond natural means, huh? Yes, that this is, uh, first of all, that this is an act of God that's been affected through their intercession. They don't have magical powers themselves, but because of their intercessory prayers, and for it to be declared a miracle means there's no other 
explanation. And if it's a cure, if it's a cure from a, an illness, it has to be instantaneous. It has to be complete. Uh, and m- uh, medical science cannot give it any other explanation. And if their prayers had helped facilitate this, then they must be in heaven, right? That's right. Because if you're in hell, <laughs> you know, <laughs> and even if God forbid, you know, I mean, you're, you're still in purgatory. You know, you don't have that access. Uh, so if someone has that miracle, but then it's not a done deal because it's ultimately up to the Pope himself, the Bishop of Rome. Uh, again, it's a very special mailbag edition of EWTN's Open Line Monday. Let's take one more listener comment line call. My name is Gino from Canton, Ohio. My question concerns original sin. How can a father and mother both Catholic, both in grace, both baptized, who have original sin removed from their soul, pass original sin on to the child. I don't understand that. I would be very okay. careful answering a question from Gino <laughs> in Canton, my friend. Yeah, I'm wondering if he was from Mother Angelica's neighborhood over there. <laughs> uh, it's a good question, Gino. I'm, I'm glad you asked that. Um, unlike actual sin is when you and I do something on our own. We purposely, intentionally, willingly deliberately say lie, cheat, or steal, or whatever. That's a sin that's incurred on us and no one else. Original sin is is passed on through human nature in the same way, and this is an analogy, so it's not perfect, but, you know, if you you and your family uh, move from another country, you come to the United States, and, you know, uh, your children are born and raised here, they're citizens because of what you've done, and then they pass that on, to their children. Genetically, things are passed on. The color of the eyes, the shape of the nose, the color of the hair, and things like that. Facial features are inherited. Uh, so we inherit the, the, the guilt of Adam and Eve, but original sin is distinct from actual sin, and yet, original sin prevents us from going to heaven. Uh, it doesn't mean we end up in hell, but it means that we can't go to heaven until we are born again of water and the Spirit and so, as I mentioned in the previous question, baptism is the way in which righteousness is imputed to us personally by the death of Jesus Christ, which happened on Calvary on Good Friday, but it's made actual and personal for us the moment of our baptism. So, original sin is washed away, and the indwelling of the Holy Trinity, sanctifying grace, is poured into our soul, and we are made righteous, we're made an adopted uh, child of God because of that act. So original sin is not something to take uh, too trivially. And we might say, well, it's not fair. Well, it's not fair if, if you know, y- your parents did something uh, foolish. Like, uh, I remember when I was a kid, one of my cousins was drinking and smoking a lot, and the doctor said, you better stop that, you're pregnant. <laughs> you know, the kid's going to, you know, be suffer because of what you've done. And so we learned that the hard way. And now we want to look at this in the same way spiritually. Again, it's a very special mailbag edition of EWTN's Open Line Monday on this Labor Day. We've got some brand new programming for you from Father John Tregilio. Um, If you would like to be part of a future mailbag show, by all means, send us an email. That email address is openline at EWTN.com. 
That's open line, all one word, at EWTN.com. Or you can call our listener comment line, which is our regular phone number, 833-288-EWTN. That's 833-288-3986 after 4 p.m. Central Time, Monday through Friday. Again, it's a very special mailbag edition of EWTN's Open Line Monday with Father John Tregilio. This is Open Line on the EWTN Global Catholic Radio Network. Today's Open Line is recorded, so no calls, please. If you'd like to send us an email for a future show, the address is openline at EWTN.com. That's right. Not taking your phone calls today. It's a special mailbag edition of Open Line Monday. Jason writes in, how can we know if a teaching from the early church was passed on orally and recorded in Scripture, or if it came from Scripture? Okay. (laughs) Uh, Well, uh, there's certainly going to be some overlap. Um, Sacred tradition and sacred Scripture work together. Obviously, sacred tradition predates sacred Scripture because before the things were set into writing at the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, the things like, for instance, that Jesus said and did were told orally. And so we have a sequence here. We have what Jesus said and did. We have the oral tradition when the apostles and the disciples told people what he said and did. And then the third stage is when the sacred authors were inspired by the Holy Spirit to actually write uh, the text, the the sacred text, the manuscripts. Uh, So sacred scripture... Uh, comes uh, after sacred tradition, but the two of them work hand in hand because they come from the same source. So we say divine revelation comes to us both through sacred scripture and sacred tradition. Now, uh, in scripture, we have certainly uh, the the virgin birth is very uh, evident in there. That makes it very clear. The passages, especially uh, in Luke's gospel, uh, it's, it's referred to more than once. Uh, the resurrection, that Jesus rose from the dead, that's certainly explicit in sacred scripture. Um, but some of the other things, like uh, how the persons of the Trinity uh, work, uh, that's something that was developed um, in sacred tradition, uh, has roots in sacred scripture, but you're not going to have the, the Trinitarian formula, or even like with Jesus' um, divine nature, uh, or that he's a divine person, uh, with one divine person with two natures, human and divine, that was formally uh, decreed uh, both at Nicaea and then later uh, fully um, elaborated at the Council of Chalcedon. Um, here's where you see both working. Um, again, it's not either or, as Pope Benedict would often say, it's both and. Let's head back to our listener comment line and take another one of those calls. My name is Socorro. I am in San Diego, California, and my question is, can I attend church services without giving 10% of my income to the church? Second question is, is it a sin if I do not give 10% of my income to the Catholic Church? Thank you. 
yes, a percentage is not part of the uh, obligation. Uh, the obligation is that you attend Mass on all Sundays and Holy Days of Obligation. That's one of the precepts of the Church. The other precept, though, is I must support the Church uh, to some degree. Uh, the precept is not that specific. I know uh, there's the, the custom, the tradition, small-t tradition, of giving 10% uh, of your income to the Church. Um, in many places, it's 5% to your parish, and then another 5 to your favorite charity, or uh, could be the Catholic Charities, could be um, you know EWTN or anything like that. Um, but the number itself is up to you after prayerful discernment and maybe talking with your spiritual director or your confessor. I know as a pastor, it was helpful for me to know who was going to regularly contribute and what they estimated they were going to give because I have to plan a budget. And without that information, it's all guesswork. Um, so I know if people said, well, I can't give you 10%, I'm going to try to give you 5 or 7 or whatever. But at least if they made that uh, known to me, that was going to be a big help. But if you're not able to, to donate, you're still able to go to church. In fact, you're still obligated to go to church. And I'm not comfortable with priests demanding, and I don't think the bishop would be either, demanding that you must give 10%. I know some other Christian churches do that or they lean heavily on it. Um, but tithing is 10% of, of your income or it could be 10% of your time and your talent. So if some people are, don't have the disposable income for various reasons, they could tithe their time, so to speak, and uh, do things, uh, volunteer work in the parish. What about tuition paid to Catholic schools? Tuition paid to Catholic schools uh, is not considered a contribution to the church because it is quid pro quo. I know the IRS will not consider that a taxable deduction. Um, some places tried to do that and they got their hands slapped. Um, but if you're give, if you're sending your kids to Catholic school, you know obviously the pastor is going to expect that you may not be able to give as much to the church, uh, to the parish because of that. So again, you donate some of your time, and you might say, "Well, I don't have much." Okay, you give what you can, but because uh, my parents paid for me and my brothers. Went to Catholic grade school. I went to high school seminary, Catholic college. Uh, it wasn't easy, but they did that for, for me and for my brothers. Um, but I know some people, it's not possible to do that and to give as much as you would like to the parish. But g paying tuition is not the same as you know donating to the parish, uh, um, the collection bags, because the electricity has to be paid for. I mean, the electric company does not give you an, a, a free pass uh, because you didn't collect enough money that month. But yet, yes, if you're supporting your kids and going to a really, truly Catholic school, um, I know any pastor is going to say, I understand. Let's head back once again to the listener comment line. I have a friend who is not a Catholic, but one Sunday she went to church with me, and she received communion. Was that wrong? Thank you. Yeah, I would say it was incorrect, um, and maybe she didn't know that she wasn't supposed to. Um, maybe the priest or the deacon or the extraordinary minister of Holy Communion didn't know that she, was, she wasn't she was Catholic. Um, so I would say the next time, um, it's by all means, invite her and any non-Catholic to come with you to Mass, but just remind them very, uh, you know, charitably that, and by the way, Holy Communion is for those who are in full communion. 
So if you're not in full communion, meaning that you're not a, a Catholic uh, Christian, or you're not able to receive because you're, you're in an invalid marriage, all right? Uh, you're still Catholic, but you're not in full communion because you're out married outside the church. So if you explain it that way, they may not completely agree, but you say, well, you know, it's the same in the Russian and Greek Orthodox Church. If you're not in full communion with them, they say, we're happy you're here, but you're not able to receive Holy Communion. And I believe we have one more listener comment line call. My name is Benjamin Bay, Grand Rapids, Michigan. Is it a sin for me to get multiple tattoos? I mean, in and of itself, uh, no. The sinfulness would be in what pictures they are, because obviously if they're obscene or if they're um, blasphemous, if they're disrespectful to the faith, if they uh, are offensive to people, and that's why you're putting on there, then yes, that would be a sin. But how many you have, uh, where you place them, you want to use uh, a modicum of, of sensibility, prudence, and common sense. Um, I would say it would. you're getting dangerously close if you're getting almost every inch of your body tattooed. But again, uh, you know, uh, my dad had a, an anchor on his arm because he was in the Navy for World War II in Korea. Um, I in no way thought that was sinful. I thought it was patriotic. You know, he um, served his country, and he put an anchor on the U.S. Navy on there. But I know some people go a little too far. Um, you know, we have guys in the seminary who have tattoos, and we say to them, you know, uh, you should consider, think about having them removed, and if you can't, you need to cover them up because we don't want them to be a distraction. You don't want people to be, you know, um, you know, when they're going to communion, they're looking at Father's uh, tattoo there. But uh, in and of itself, tattoos are not intrinsically evil, but they can be overused, they can be abused, and you have to ask yourself, why am I getting this done? Uh, what is being done? And, uh, you know, what's the context of, 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 the, of the action itself? So, so an eagle would be obscene, a stealer would be fine. <laughs> I'm a Cleveland Browns fan myself, so I don't even think I don't even think you could get a Cleveland Browns tattoo right now. <laughs> you can't get a Cleveland Indians anymore, that's for sure. Um, uh, don't even get me going here. Eight eight three three two eight eight EWTN is our toll free number. Eight three three two eight eight three nine eight six. If you'll call that any day after four p.m. You can leave a listener comment line question for a future mailbag show. We roll on on this Labor Day. Frank writes in, what is the origin of Christianity? Is Catholicism the first <laughs> Christian religion? It is the first and it's the fullest. It's the first because Jesus said, he uses the word church uh, in Matthew's gospel when he says to Peter, when he asks, who do people say that I am? And Peter says, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus says, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for no mere man revealed this to you but my heavenly Father. And I declare, thou art Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church. So it's Jesus' church, but it's built on the rock of Peter. And all the popes, all the bishops of Rome, uh, from Peter on down, all the way to Pope Francis, are successors of Peter. And so there's been an unbroken line in that leadership, in that what we call Petrine ministry. And St. Ambrose coined this back to antiquity, Ubi Petrus Ibi Ecclesia, where Peter is, there is the church. So the Catholic Church has been around since the time of Peter, and later in church history we had the 
the first schism between the East and West in the 11th century when the Greek Orthodox split from, from Rome. Then we had the Protestant Reformation in the 16th century when Martin Luther uh, broke from, from Rome and started the, the Protestant Church. Um, so, yes, the Catholic Church was the first, and it is also the fullness because it has all seven sacraments, it has sacred scripture and sacred tradition, it has the, the Petrine ministry. Uh, the, the Roman pontiff is, is the supreme head of the church. So all that shows both those realities, that it's the first and it's also the fullness. Tommy writes in, how do we talk to Protestants who don't believe in papal infallibility? Well, again, we refer to that, uh, that passage there in Matthew's Gospel. Thou art Peter, and upon this rock I'll build my church. The gates of hell won't prevail. Whatever you declare bound on earth is bound in heaven. Whatever you declare loosed on earth is loosed in heaven. So that whatever is very inclusive. Um, it was solemnly defined. doesn't mean it didn't apply beforehand, but it was solemnly defined at the First Vatican Council, uh, which obviously took place before the, the Second Vatican Council, and it made it clear that the Pope is infallible. Uh, it's his extraordinary infallibility when he speaks on faith and morals. Uh, it's called ex cathedra from the chair, and he intends to make this teaching universal upon all the faithful. And so far, there's only been two ex cathedra dogmas proclaimed, the Immaculate Conception by Pius IX and the Assumption by Pius XII. But there's also the ordinary uh, magisterium of, of, of the Pope, which is considered also infallible, the ordinary magisterium of the Church. So when Paul VI reiterated the Church's teaching on contraception and abortion in Humani Vitae, it's infallible teaching, just like Ordinatio Sacerdotalis when John Paul said only baptized males can be priests, but in terms of extraordinary ex cathedra, it was just the Immaculate Conception and the Assumption. But that's all involved with papal infallibility. Again, it's a very special mailbag edition of EWTN's Open Line Monday, so we won't be taking your phone calls today. Father John, not a lot of people realize that you are 118 years old, but James <laughs> apparently knows because he says, how do you interpret the extremely long lifespans recorded in the book of Genesis? Well, first of all, there weren't as many germs. <laughs> there wasn't pollution, all right? Um, people had better lifestyles. Um, we don't know. I mean, I don't question the fact that people live longer. Um, you know, that hasn't been disproved um, conclusively that, that there's no way that they could have. Um, so longevity, you know, later on I understand that people lived a little bit sh a shorter life because life got harder. Certainly at the time of the Middle Ages and the Industrial Revolution, there was a lot more stress. There was a lot more influence on, bad influence on people's health. And so people didn't live as long, but in Old Testament times, particularly, you know, in the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Bible, the Torah, yes, I mean, it makes sense that people would have lived longer because, you know, they were healthier. There wasn't as, I mean, you didn't have the stuff going on as you do today. Um, Bill has a question. If we believe that life starts at conception, why don't we baptize babies when they're still in the womb? Uh, we don't because um, for no other reason than, uh, you know, the, the part of the of the life process is birth. Certainly they exist as, uh, you know, in the womb, uh, a human embryo. Um, and if some, if God forbid there's uh, 
a danger because one of the things to baptize, you need to get water on the baby, the embryo, especially on their head, and it's very difficult to baptize in utero. Um, I never had to do that, but um, a priest friend of mine who was a hospital chaplain said there was a problem with the with the birthing process, and so before the baby actually was born uh, out of the mother's womb, uh, they were able to get it. He was able to somehow get in there and baptize. Okay, but it's very difficult. So uh, things being all uh, easier and convenient for mom and for the baby, uh, we wait until the baby's born and then is able to uh, be brought to church. But in emergency, anybody, anybody, they don't even have to be Catholic, can baptize, and, and they have to say, I baptize you in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. But they must use water, and they must pour the water over the head uh, of the child. Tomorrow night is Mother Angelica Live Classics Night, 8 p.m. Eastern Time. This week, Mother Angelica examines the topic of speaking in parables. That's Mother Angelica Live Classics tomorrow night, Tuesday night, 8 p.m. Eastern Time, right here on EWTN Radio and Television. It's a special mailbag edition on this Labor Day of Open Line Monday. Paula writes in, can you explain how Catholics present the Scriptures, especially the Gospels, and how is it different from how Protestants would present it? Um, I my guess is, in terms of how the Protestants present it, we both present it as you know the, the what Jesus said and did. Um, the Pontifical Biblical Commission many years ago made it very clear that the Church solemnly and officially believes that they accurately tell us what Jesus said and did. Uh, that these were not just stories that the Christians made up uh, to sort of prop up this idea that Jesus is the Son of God. Uh, or that he is um, both human and divine, as some alleged. Um, certainly, you know, w- when you watch uh, a solemn mass and the deacons processing with the book of the Gospels, it's very elaborate. Um, the incense, they incense the book of the Gospels many times. The priest or deacon kisses the, the book of the Gospels. Those are all ways in which we reverence that this is, yes, not only the Word of God, but this is very special. And so we stand at mass during the Gospel it doesn't mean that we don't regard the Old Testament or the epistle reading as uh, inconsequential or not as important, but the gospel ranks above those because it's about Jesus specifically. It's about what he said and what he did. Now, that's how we do it in the Catholic Church. It's how they do it in the Orthodox Christian Church. Um, in Protestant churches, they certainly revere the gospel. Um, they're not going to have incense. They're not going to process with it. Um, they're not going to kiss the book, um, so it, it's more in, in the physical treatment. But I think in terms of of moral and spiritual, you know, we're both on the same page, at least in, in terms of mainline Christian churches. That this is something special. Uh, it's part of the part of the Bible, but it's also the heart of the Bible. Um, got an email from Diane. Can you define what deliberate consent means in the case of mortal sin? Deliberate consent means you know what you're doing and you intentionally want to do it. So it's, it's deliberate. It means I'm, it's an f- act of the free will. Um, in order for it to be a moral act, I have to know what I'm doing and I'm not under any force or pressure. Now, pressure or force can dilute and sometimes actually completely mitigate culpability. So if somebody is um, 
completely under uh, the influence of drugs and alcohol, they may be um, totally not responsible, uh, at least in terms of the sin itself. So uh, somebody who's completely plastered uh, with alcohol or they're, they're taking drugs and they're, you know, they're, they're higher than a kite, um, they're doing bad things, but they may not be com- culpable at the subjective level 100%. Whereas somebody who's completely sane, who's completely uh, sober and is under no duress, uh, makes a decision, and I, they know it's wrong, and they do it anyway, uh, then that's where we get deliberate consent. Um, where you get into murky areas is where someone's under a lot of emotional strain. doesn't take away culpability, but it certainly weakens it a little bit. So he puts a gun to your head, all right, and says, do this. Again, it's a free will act, but you're under a lot of duress. You're under a lot of uh, force and, and fear. And moral teaching is that it can affect culpability. It may not always eradicate it completely. But for it to be a full-blown mortal sin, you need grave matter, deliberate consent, and you have to have full knowledge. Herb wants to know, what is the Sunday Mass obligation, and are there ever any exceptions to it? The Sunday obligation is that Catholic Christians must go to Mass either any time on a Sunday or on a Saturday evening. In most dioceses, it has to be any time after 4 o'clock. Um, and that's how you up- fulfill your obligation. You go to Mass uh, on, those, on those Sundays or Saturday evening uh, or on those Sunday days, uh, Sundays uh, or on the Holy Days of Obligation. Okay, uh, That's how you fulfill your your obligation in going and uh, going to the mass now you're exempt if it's bad weather and you can't get out to go anywhere else you know if it's a snowstorm which we often would have when i grew up in erie which was almost every other day um if you're in a tornado or hurricane uh or your health somebody is very ill whether they're they have covid or pneumonia chicken pox if you're under house uh, arrest, so to speak, because your doctor says don't go anywhere, then you're exempt from going to Mass. Um, but if you're able to go anywhere else, if you're able to go to the store, if you're able to go to the restaurant and eat, if you're able to go to the movies, you're able to go to Mass. But if you're taking care of someone, like you're um, a new parent, you're taking care of a, of a new baby that you know, the doctor says don't take them out to, yet, you're exempt. Health reasons or taking care of someone for serious health reasons exempts you. Um, bad weather exempts you. Uh, if you have physical disability and you're unable to get to Mass. But again, the, the key here is, are you able to go anywhere else? And if you can go somewhere else for other activities, then you really should be going to Mass. Uh, Tara writes in, how can I defend why Catholics pray to Mary? I am a new Catholic with a Protestant family. Okay, well, praying to Mary uh, is not... A violation of any commandment, it would be if we adored or worshiped Mary, because the first commandment forbids that. We can only adore and worship God. But there's different kinds of prayer. There's the prayer of adoration, which we only give to God. But there's also a prayer of petition, where we're making a request. And so in the gospel, we see that when the Roman centurion asked Jesus uh, to cure his servant boy, you know, he's making a prayer on behalf of this kid. Now, if we were technically saying, well, you, you you know, you can only go to Jesus, then the kid would be the only one who could ask Jesus for healing. 
but the Roman centurion asks on his behalf. So the Roman centurion is in essence an intercessor. Just like the wedding feast of Cana, it was Mary who said to Jesus, they have no more wine. So intercession, when we pray to Mary, we're asking for her intercession. That's what we call the communion of saints, that it's a beautiful thing. But it's not mediation, which occurs with Christ. Mary and the saints go to Christ on our behalf, and that's allowed. So praying to Mary is basically making a prayer request. It's like here on earth, when somebody is in trouble or they need help, they have what they call a prayer chain. Nobody's offended when the pastor or the person of the parish says, hey, Fred's having his gallbladder out, let's all pray for him. Nobody says, well, let Fred pray for himself. We, we're, we're not uh, mediators. Well, of course you're not. But you can pray for him as intercessors, and they do. John says, I'm new to the Catholic Church. Can you help me understand why the story of Susanna was removed from the Bible? Uh, it wasn't removed from our Bible. <laughs> it's still in the in the original Bible. It was removed uh, at the time of Martin Luther because uh, he got rid of all the deuterocanonical books, those seven books that were, were only written first in Greek, then later translated into Hebrew. They were written in the, around 250, 150 B.C. Uh, they were considered part of the canon of Scripture. It wasn't until the year 100 A.D., when the Jewish authorities uh, removed those those books. Uh, by that time, Christianity was already on its own, because remember, we were kicked out of the Judaism after the destruction of the temple in Jerusalem by the Romans. So, the Susanna, the parts of Daniel, and then those seven books, you know, Tobit, Maccabees, uh, uh, Wisdom, uh, Judith, and that, those were all there. We didn't add them, we kept them. Father, would you leave us with a Labor Day blessing? Absolutely. And the blessing of Almighty God, the Father, Son, the Holy Spirit, descend upon you and remain with you forever. Amen. Amen. On behalf, behalf rather, of our host, Father John Tregilio, our producer, Michael McCall, I'm Jack Williams. Thanks so much for sharing part of your Labor Day holiday with us. We're back at it tomorrow with Father Wade Menezes talking faith, family, and fellowship. Until we get together then, God bless.